Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all Wednesday, February 8th, just after 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You're tuned in to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. If you missed my disclaimer yesterday, I will give you fair warning that I am uh, coming off the tail end of what's proven to be a weeks-long battle with pneumonia. I picked up some uh, bacterium while I was cavorting with the globalists in Davos, believe it or not. I'm pretty sure that's it, because I got back from Davos on a Friday, and then by Monday, I just started getting a little bit ill, and it just kept getting worse for the next week, and then, you know, three weeks later, I've still got a bit of a cough. But I made it through yesterday's show with only having to go on mute and turn off my camera just once. I bet you didn't even notice. It was so subtle. Uh, So this time we will hopefully be able to get through the whole show without any such breakdown. But as I've said, if I keel over in the middle, just rest assured that uh, we'll we'll have a uh, guest host in place and rename the program and move on from there. But I thank you for all of the uh, well wishes. I actually don't know if I got any well wishes, but if you did send a well wish yesterday... I appreciate it very much. I'm going to be talking about this big uh, 40 bajillion, billion, zillion, gazillion, whatever it is, dollar healthcare slush fund that the Liberal government is giving provinces, which in true Federalist fashion, all of the provincial governments are saying, well, you know, we don't exactly like this offer from the feds. Uh, No, 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 we're going to take the money, but we, uh, you know, we don't exactly like the money and how it's being spent and what terms are on it. We're going to talk about that with Sean Watley, Dr. Sean Watley, the former president of the Ontario Medical Association. But I I want to start off just, I know we're a couple days ahead of when Fake News Friday comes out, which I believe is on uh, Saturdays. No, wait, Fridays. Yeah, there there we go. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about CBC because the uh, head of CBC, Catherine Tate, uh, who lives in a a multi-million dollar Brooklyn house while running the state broadcaster of Canada inexplicably, has done an interview which, when you looked at the headline. It seemed like a bit of a bombshell. It was in the Globe and Mail. CBC signals plans to go full streaming, ending traditional TV and radio broadcasts. Now, for many people in this country, this would actually uh, come as no difference whatsoever because they live their lives as though CBC doesn't have any traditional radio or television broadcast because people are not tuning into either of them, but it uh, comes across as something that uh, was actually quite revolutionary, that CBC is going to be uh, getting off the dial, so to speak, and becoming an online streaming outlet, perhaps inspired by the alternative business model of people like us at True North. And then you read through the article in the Globe and Mail, you read through the interview with Catherine Tate, And you find that there's actually nothing particularly groundbreaking or revolutionary or even new in this. I'm going to quote directly from the article. In an interview with the Globe and Mail, Ms. Catherine Tate, president and CEO of the CBC, said the broadcaster is eventually preparing to shift all its content to online only in order to remain relevant. Now, not to just play with technicalities here, but I believe remaining relevant implies that you are 
relevant, which would strike me as somewhat difficult for CBC. Nevertheless, she said, though Canadians are moving to streaming services, CBC is sitting there loyally broadcasting over the airwaves. We have to be digital first if we're going to be audience first. You say, wow, okay, what are you doing? What are you doing to keep up with the audience? And it's unlikely, she said, to happen in less than a decade. So this is basically like maybe, just maybe, in 10 years, we might consider setting up a YouTube page or something like that. Uh, but nothing is happening. There's nothing new. There's been no announcement. And by the way, this whatever you think of Catherine Tate and CBC's management, this is a crown corporation. So ideally, something really fundamental about the future of CBC should not be announced by this unelected bureaucrat, but should be announced by, I don't know, the minister who's responsible for CBC. Not that I've got a lot of time for the heritage minister and the Trudeau government, but ideally it would be an elected government making the decision about the future of CBC. But then you get further into the article, and I find the real noteworthy stuff has nothing to do with the future of whether CBC is making a play for Netflix's market share, but it's actually about the way that she views Pierre Polyev, who is the leader of the Conservatives, who has pledged to defund CBC. And by the way, even after becoming leader of the Conservatives, he has not gone back on this. And I was very keenly aware of this possibility because it's what Aaron O'Toole did when he became the leader of the Conservatives. All of a sudden, his pledge to defund the CBC became unrecognizable. It was like, we need to maybe strike a committee to possibly consider talking about perhaps, uh, you know, changing the ad model of CBC or something. Like he, there was nothing resembling what he pledged in the leadership, which was defunding once he had become the leader. Pierre Polyev, to his credit, has been consistent since becoming the leader of His Majesty's loyal opposition. But uh, Catherine Tate doesn't like that because he is now threatening her job effectively. So she said, oh yeah, this opposition leader is uh, doing CBC bashing, which, okay, probably an accurate representation of it. She said this though, I think they feel that CBC is a mouthpiece for the Liberal government. Now, Pierre Polyev tweeted out, I, I think I refreshed the screen or moved this, oh, here it is. Uh, Pierre Polyev tweeted out that uh, Catherine Tate is proving that she is, in fact, a mouthpiece for Justin Trudeau. So I guess in that sense, uh, Catherine Tate is kind of accurate in her depiction of Pierre Polyev as believing she's a mouthpiece for the Liberals, but she's conveniently getting into the political fray here. And instead of telling Canadians why CBC deserves to exist and deserves to get over $1.2 billion of Canadian taxpayer money every year to exist. All she's doing is firing these potshots at the Conservatives saying they're the big evil scary guys because they want to go after CBC. Now, look, CBC has produced, my, my issue with CBC has, believe it or not, not been entirely about its content. Sure, they've produced some absolutely terrible shows, like being a little mosque on the prairie was probably one of the most embarrassing, uh, humiliating excuses for programming. But you look on the contrary, Shit's Creek, I admit I've never seen an episode of it, but it's managed to be tremendously popular, not just in Canada, but even in the coveted US market. Shows like Heartland, I, my old... Uh, classmate uh, from school, actually, uh, Amber Marshall, the star of that show, that seems to have a, a very loyal audience. It was going for several years. It might even still be on the air. I must confess, I, I don't know. Uh, and you have other shows that ZBC has had that occasionally have been winners. But if you're producing a winning show, you don't need a government subsidy. 
And, and if they produced more good quality shows, I don't think there would be this antipathy by Canadians to CBC to the extent that there is. And I think BBC in the UK is a great example of this. Now, look, fundamentally, I don't believe that in this day and age, you need public broadcasters that are getting billions of dollars of state money and going after competing with private sector media companies. And it's just not necessary. The fact that CBC is bidding on the Olympics as though there's no private business case for someone to air the Olympics is laughable and shameful. But that aside, BBC is almost more forgiveness worthy. Because BBC produces like great shows and they have produced historically great British programs. So if CBC were had the batting average of BBC, they wouldn't be struggling to stay relevant and trying to make these half-baked claims about, oh, well, yes, we need to uh, move our content online. You can move crap content online and it doesn't make it less crap content. The problem is not that Canadians have to watch Rosemary Barton's proclamations about politics on a conventional television set. The problem is that Canadians don't want to see what Rosie Barton has to say. And that's not a slight at Rosie Barton. I've had a number of chats with her over the years. She's a lovely person, but she is not connecting with Canadians. And most of the CBC anchors, remember when they got rid of Peter Mansbridge, who was basically the greatest illusion that's ever been portrayed to Canadians, that this was this anchor, this mainstay of Canada that Canadians looked to and trusted, like Walter Cronkite. And then he goes and, you know, no one has really realized he's gone. And they replace him with four other people because he was such a giant of a man that you need four rotating anchors to do it. And the problem was not that this was on a traditional broadcasting set. The problem was that no one cared. No one cared. So CBC is galvanizing private sector media. And they're doing this in a way that is costing Canadians, again, $1.2 plus billion a year, cannibalizing private sector media. And we're all supposed to accept that this is the natural order or the natural order of things. And, and there are different models for public broadcasters. And there actually is, believe it or not, and I should do some further investigation on this. There's an international consortium of public broadcasters. And they all get together, the Norway public broadcaster, the Canadian public broadcaster, the British public broadcaster, they all get together and basically talk about how they can ensure they remain funded. Because that's their goal. It's not relevance. Their goal is funding. Their goal is that they don't want a Pierre Polyev type or a Maxime Bernier type coming in and saying, why is this something that we have to pay for? And I remember I was in England a couple of years ago. I was at the Global Conference for Media Freedom, and I was interviewing the woman whose name escapes me right now, unfortunately, uh, who was the head of this consortium of public broadcasters. And I was asking her a bunch of questions about this. And, and I asked about the gap filling model, which is what she called it, where you say that, you know, the public broadcaster should only exist where there are gaps that the private sector won't fill. For example, you know, it might not have the strongest business case to broadcast in a very small indigenous language that's not spoken all that much, or to broadcast in a rural, remote northern community. There might not be a business case. So that's where we should have a public broadcaster. And she said, oh, no, 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 that's, we, we don't need to do that. We need robust public broadcasters. We need them in every space imaginable. They should have the Olympics. They should have all of this. 
And that to me is insane. And these entities are just these giant, one story about CBC, I've interrupted my own sentence there, but one story I'll tell before we move on from this for the time being. I covered in, it was a very big story, and I ended up being one of the ones who broke it nationally. In 2017, there was a thwarted terrorist attack in Strathroy, Ontario. The guy's name was Aaron Driver. He was shot by police. It was very dramatic. And there was uh, inconveniently very little information that came out about it after the fact. But uh, I broke this story. I was in Strathroy the night this whole thing happened. The next day, all the national media came from, you know, all of the places around uh, Ontario to cover it the next day because they have to be there the day after the news has happened for some reason. And, oh, CP24 has a van with a camera person and a reporter. Oh, the Globe and Mail sent down a guy. Uh, Canadian Press hired a photographer who was local. And who else was there? City News sent a, a van. CTV London sent a van. CBC, I want to count this out to just tell you how many crews they had. CBC Windsor was there. London or Strathroy is like halfway between Windsor and Toronto. So CBC Windsor was there. CBC Toronto was there. CBC National from Toronto was there. CBC The National, the show that was at the time Peter Mansbridge, The National sent their own person. Uh, so I think we're at five now. And then CBC Radio Canada sent someone from Toronto to do the same thing in French. So you basically had six separate CBC crews all coming and doing their own versions of the same story, which by that point uh, wasn't really a story because the story had happened 24 hours earlier. So this is CBC. So when they get that $1.2 billion, they're actually spending more money than private sector media is. Now, I don't support government bailouts of media. I've been against the $600 media bailout. I hope it gets uh, absolutely destroyed and ripped up. But there is a thing, like if the government is going to spend $1.2 billion, imagine how much more journalism, if that's the goal, you could produce by spending that money on more efficient private sector media. Again, I'm not lining up to say we need to expand the bailout to triple its size, but I'm saying that even if we want to say that public broadcasting is an important function, CBC is the least efficient model for that. And there is no business case for it. The fact that Canadians are tuning out and not paying attention to this is an example of this. They would never make this money from selling ads because they don't have the audience base to support it. And when Catherine Tate from her million dollar, multi-million dollar Brooklyn home says, well, we need to stay relevant. We'll try becoming relevant first. Your issue is not where you're broadcasting. Your issue is what you are broadcasting. So CBC is like the federal government selling something for which there are no buyers. I'm going to talk about healthcare in just a moment here. But first, I want to do something which... Uh, we tried to do yesterday, had a, a little technical glitch here, so our absolute uh, sincere apologies. But our friends at secondstreet.org, secondstreet.org have a very novel idea on how Canada can help cut Vladimir Putin's military budget. This is a plan they've laid out in a new documentary called Defund Putin, which goes in extensively to that very topic. You can watch it for free at defundputin.ca. And there's a little bit of a taste of it in this trailer here. In order to stop Vladimir Putin's war machine, we need to reflect on the old expression, follow the money. It's not a thriving, expanding, growing economy. 
Russia today is essentially a gas station. Vladimir Putin has been working behind the scenes to sabotage his competitors. Putin and his cronies helped fund the anti-shale gas propaganda that led seven European countries to ban fracking. Do we stand up and help the world wean itself off of Russian oil and natural gas? Or do we keep our resources in the ground and let the world stay dependent on tyrants like Vladimir Putin? That is thanks to our friends over at secondstreet.org. You can watch that at defundputin.ca. And by the way, I mean, that is not even a commentary on the Russia-Ukraine war. That's a commentary, I think, by and large, on energy policy in this country. And when you look at what's happened to places like Germany, places like Hungary, they've been entirely dependent uh, on sucking at the teat of the Russian state. And they're enriching the oligarchs, they're impoverishing their own citizens. And in Canada, we have energy that we can make available to the world. And we have our own ideologues in government that don't want to make that happen. So I'm glad uh, over at Second Street, they're shining a light on that. Uh, let's turn to healthcare, though. As you would have heard yesterday, perhaps Justin Trudeau has decided to go to the provinces and offer up $46.2 billion in new healthcare funding. Now, it sounds really big. This is over the next 10 years. And it is not condition-free. And what's happening now is provincial premiers are saying, yeah, we're going to take the money, but, uh, you know, I don't like it. But it was basically uh, an ultimatum. It was a, a one-size-fits-all offer. And now the federal government is wanting to put more conditions on this money, which, again, the premier is not loving. But uh, let's face it, no one's going to turn down the cash when there is a healthcare crisis across this country uh, is an issue Dr. Sean Watley knows very well. He literally wrote the book on ways that the government could fix this. And the fact that he hasn't been made a uh, health minister is a uh, great shame here. And he's the former president of the Ontario Medical Association. Uh, Sean, it's good to talk to you as always here. We talk about the system and oftentimes people can point to a number of things that need more funding and, and need more money. But there's an efficiency problem here in that you can't just write a check without reevaluating, in my view, how the money is spent. Oh, absolutely. And that's what I think the uh, feds are using as a springboard to say, this is why we need more control, because we need a whole bunch more accountability. Uh, having said that, no purchaser of services or products has ever been able to renovate the delivery of those services or products. If you walk into Tim Hortons right now and tell everybody in your Tim Hortons, hey, I'm going to pay for all your coffee and donuts. And then you walk up to management and say, all right, I want you to change the way you make your donuts and I want hotter coffee and a little more cream in my double-double. Management's going to look at you and say, you don't, you don't know how to run a Tim Hortons. What are you talking about? Yes, you've just paid for all the services, but you can't change the management. So I think that's what you're getting at right there. It's very, very difficult for provinces and the federal government to change the way services are delivered. And we can't improve care without changing it at that fundamental level that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, anyone who's ever looked at government spending reports, which I suppose is not as amusing an activity as I'm making it sound, but you'll know that there's this thing called March Madness, where every March you have these government departments that just blow money on new chairs, new desks, new computers, because they had this room in the budget and they don't want it to be taken away the next year. So you have people that are spending up to their cap, and it's not a question of what's the best use of this money 
money? How do we best improve our, our performance and our output? And I fear that's what's happening here now. I mean, the federal government has not proven, certainly not this government, that it has an ability to do any level of central planning. So even putting this money to provinces and saying, here's how you need to spend it, like, I, I'm not seeing the roadmap on how healthcare will be improved with this. Yeah, so two points you raised there. Um, I'm glad you used the word central planning, and that needs to be more a part of our dialogue. So understandably, $200 billion captures the headlines, and that's what we want to talk about. And I'm glad you highlighted that actually this is only $46 billion in new dollars. The rest of that money was going to flow anyways, and it's spread out over 10 years. Net Having said that, people still love to talk about the money. But really what we should be talking about is the control that's at issue. So you look at their long list of things they want changed, even going back to March. I'm looking at a list by uh, Health Minister Duclos. He said, well, these are our five priorities. But if you look at them, they're actually more like 10 or 15 priorities. So essentially they're setting the marching orders and it, it, it's... I can't understand why they want control. It's like a dog chasing the car. What are you going to do when you catch the car? Furthermore, how do you even know you can control healthcare better than the provinces? And uh, so it's a mixture of uh, ignorance and arrogance. And and to hear the our prime minister, you know, almost fold his arms and say, "We need better performance," and you're not going to get money until you show me performance. It's it's like saying the the beatings will continue until morale improves. I just I can't figure it out. And you also made a comment, though, about March Madness and funding. What we see in the hospital um, um, sector especially is that the worst performers often get the most funding. Now, governments tweaked into this a few years back, and they realize now that if you really come, you know, if you really go over budget and maybe you need to be replaced as a board, but never come in at budget and never come in below budget because it means your budget will get cut next year. And so there's this bizarre political game uh, going on when really patients want care and they want to know who to hold accountable for delivering that care. How much latitude do premiers have to be innovative about delivery? And, and I, I'm not talking about privatization here. I am talking about uh, private alternatives. You can have universal coverage and private delivery. There's nothing, as I understand it, that precludes that. But, but how trapped are premiers in this system? So fantastic question. You're asking like someone who I think ran for political party, perhaps. Basically, they have almost zero latitude. So if you speak to these ministers of health or a minister of long-term care, they say, listen, John, the money's all tied up. It's all tied up in salaries. It's tied up in, um, in contract negotiations and uh, collective bargaining agreements. That's the wording I was looking for. And so there's very little wiggle room as far as uh, injecting some creativity in how our system functions by tweaking the way funding flows. Having said that, Premier Ford's uh, recent announcement where he says, you know, we're just going to shift more services outside of hospitals. We've had this shift going on for 40 years. It's it's a little bit absurd that people are saying, oh, this is terrible. This is the end of the world. No, we're just going to increase MRIs and CT scans in the community like we've been doing for the last 20 or 30 years. Doing that, though, leapfrogs all of the management and the regulatory system that is attached to hospitals. And so for a short time, you'll be able to see innovation on the management side in these non-hospital facilities. So 
ministers of health can do those sorts of things, but it's very difficult to actually use dollars and be creative like we would hope they could be. One thing I, I know, and I, I've been very fortunate, I've had a family doctor my entire life. When my doctor from childhood retired, his daughter took over his practice. And I, I mentioned at the top of the show that I, I was just coming off a, a bout of pneumonia. And I mean, when I called my family doctor, I had an appointment a few hours later. And, and I know that a lot of people do not have anywhere close to that level of access here. And uh, you are right, because if someone can't get in to see a family doctor, what is it they want to do? They want to go to a hospital. They want to go to an urgent care system. You've got a lot of people in hospital that don't need to be there. And this seems to be this catch-all that no one has really come up with an answer to. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, privileged access because uh, you're a prime example of someone who has connections and someone who um, the person at the other end of the line will definitely pick up the phone. And and the reason I... I'm I when I was a nobody, they still picked up the phone though. So I, it's, <laughs> I don't attribute it to privilege. I just think it's a really good doctor, but carry on. It's, it's all privilege, man. It's all privilege. No, uh, one of the core fundamentals of our system is care regardless of the your ability to pay. And it's sort of this beautiful um, uh, truth that we, we design our whole system around. But really, the reality is that people who have some sort of access or they know somebody inside the system get better. They, they are able to get better care for themselves and their family. So the issue of privileged access is key. You also ask, though, about... Um, accessing care in different ways. You know, should the hospital really be the place that we go as a default? And Canada has always had a hospital-based or hospital-centric system. And this flows, you know, 1957, the Hospital Insurance and Diagnostic Services Act. That was the first time we saw this dollar-for-dollar cost-sharing where the government, the federal government said, listen, provinces, we'll pay 50% of whatever you spend in hospitals. And they repeated the same deal with the Medical Care Act, 1966. And those are the two pillars of the of Medicare as we know it. As you know, the first Trudeau government turned off that blank check approach of the 50-50 deal in 1977 with the Established Programs Financing Act. And then provinces and the feds have been fighting about funding ever since. And that's what we're seeing right now. Well, I mean, on mental health care specifically, I mean, I've been very open about my own experiences with, with mental health challenges. But just looking at it from the system perspective here, I think one of the worst things you can do for a patient who is not in any acute medical situation is to have police pick them up on a mental health call and bring them into a hospital where uh, the resources are, are already tied up and already stretched thin. And again, I, I would imagine there is probably a much less costly and better quality alternative out there, but it, it requires a complete rethink of the, the system. Well, part of what you're getting at with mental health care and many other services fall into this as well is that they are intangible. It's easy to say we have a wait time for hip replacements. We know your hip is worn out and we can measure it and we can you know, pay the, for the number of hips being done. Mental health care is very difficult because um, it, it's, it, you know, J James Q. Wilson, Harvard professor, talks about it being more a representative of a coping organization. It's more like education or like mm -hmm. peacekeeping when a police officer is out keeping the peace, how can you tell how much peace they're keeping? Can you pay them more if they keep more peace or punish them if they don't keep peace? Well, peace is a metaphysical concept. And and you're you're getting at that with 
um, health care as well. How do we know that my advice to you to um, uh, change your diet or whatever is going to do anything for you 20 years from now or 40 or 50 years from now? Will it make you live one year longer? How do we know that my advice was perhaps ignored and maybe you listen to someone else in your house or your friend or your mom or whatever. And so what you're getting at is the intangible, you're getting into an intangible uh, thing where, you know, you hear not everything that can be measured matters and not everything that matters can be measured. And so now you're talking about something that is very difficult to measure, but it matters a great deal. And so it tends to fall off the budgets and spreadsheets and all these beautiful charts that you see from our health system planners, but we end up in the crisis that we're in right now because of it. So suppose you are the health minister of a province, it doesn't really matter which one, and the government has given you whatever your province's share is of, of this uh, $46 billion over the next 10 years, which when you break it down over 10 years, plus over 10 provinces and three territories, it's uh, not even uh, as huge, it's even less uh, significant an amount. But let's say you're given this. What is the most, in your view, tangible change you could put in place with that money? So you've limited me to just talking about money. Usually I try to answer that question by saying I want to talk about governance first. Well, who's in let's charge. do both. I mean, let's do both. How, how can you most efficiently spend that money pretending that the current governance restrictions are not there? Okay, so it's usually three things I talk about. Number one, we, not, we have to figure out governance. Who's in charge? Right now, Canadians don't know who to hold accountable. Do we hold the feds accountable? Do we hold the provinces accountable? Do we hold our local hospital accountable? Who do we hold accountable for access to care? So that has to be clear, number one. Number two, we need to expand core services. So when I talk about core services, I'm talking about life or limb. And that's sort of the fundamental, that's the moral high ground in medicine. Whatever you do, when someone comes in, you have to save life or limb first. Mental health falls in there. It is a life or limb issue. So we need to expand services around life and limb issues. The second thing, the third thing actually, or the second thing with, with concrete things that I would change uh, with respect to funding is to constrict, and this is the part people don't like, to constrict things that are inappropriate. So we have to have a discussion first about appropriateness. Are all the services that we spend money on actually appropriate for the current um, environment we live in? Right now, medicine can offer far more than anyone ever dreamed it could offer in the 1960s when we were coming up with this public health insurance uh, approach in Canada. And so we've massively expanded what we can do and what we can offer and then provinces are pressured to keep at offering you know pet scans or mris for anterior knee pain or you could go on and on with the things that we probably shouldn't be doing the obviously wrong things are, are fall under the choosing wisely campaign where they encourage doctors to stop ordering useless tests but that's only a fraction we need to have a robust discussion to say what do we have medicare for is it simply a redistribution program like roy romano calls it he calls it our great redistributive program in canada or is it to provide a safety net for core life and limb issues? So that's where I would focus on expanding those services, contracting the more useless ones. But number one, we have to get governance fixed out. 
Yeah, and, and again, we all get stuck, and you and I have spoken about this in the past, in this very false dichotomy between a Canadian healthcare system and an American healthcare system. I was just uh, listening to a show my friend Mark Stein did, and he just was talking about the difference between the UK system and the French system. They're both completely government-funded, but one is vastly superior to the other. So there are degrees of quality within every system, within every permutation and combination here. And, you know, there are things that I, I think shouldn't be third rail issues. One of them, and again, I'm not even advising that the government does this, but I, I certainly think there should be a permitted discussion is having a copay when you go to a clinic or when you go to a family doctor, or perhaps everyone gets, you know, three free visits a year. And if you go over that, you have to pay some nominal fee or something like that. Like, but the fact is there are what I think are ideological uh, people that are resistant to any change whatsoever. And they'd prioritize uh, equality of care over quality of care. Yeah, great comments. And you've really opened a wide up door, wide, wide door for a whole bunch of discussions. Which just is very, great very... as we're winding down just to like throw <laughs> the bomb of copay in there. But anyway, carry on. So we have the 28 universal health care systems around the world. And I think we can be strong in saying universal care just means everybody in your country gets care. There are many different ways to achieve that end. 28 different countries around the world have universal health care. 23 of the 28 have some form of cost sharing. Now, when you get into patient cost sharing, um, one of the mistakes people make, and I just wrote a large paper on this actually for McDonald-Laurier Institute, is that they think they'll get cost sharing to increase revenue. In fact, that doesn't work. The countries that use cost sharing, they always have robust exemptions for the very old, the very young, the chronically ill, and that sort of thing. So once you narrow who you're going to focus the cost sharing onto, you do have a measurable change in, in how many times people will go to the doctor for the same problem, for their anterior knee pain, which is the bane of an orthopod's existence. And so there, there is some role for it to play. However, however, it actually may cost the system more. If you imagine a long lineup at Tim Hortons and everybody in that lineup wants, you know, one Timbit, and there are two or three people in there with a large order, the average cost for that long Tim Hortons lineup will be very low. Whereas if every single person in that lineup wants a dozen donuts and 15 coffees, the average cost per customer is very high. It's the same with healthcare. If you use user fees to get some of those low value people out of that line, you may drive up, and most studies suggest you will drive up the average cost per patient. But that's the right thing to do. So we should do it to improve efficiency and improve horizontal equity so that you and I, if we're earning the same amount of money and we have similar genetics and you go to the doctor every two weeks and I go to the doctor once a year, why do I have to pay the same health premiums? So there's an argument to be made for them, but it's not the magic solution that some people think it is. Well, I appreciate it very much. And just on the note of ideology, I have to share this comment. There was a, a service that started up in Canada a few years ago called Maple, which lets people for a, a nominal fee, whatever it is, see a, a doctor virtually and, and get a prescription if they need or anything like that. And 
in my as my, to my understanding, all of the doctors on Maple are employed within the public system, but in their off time, they sign up and they take you know however many patients a day or a week. And it's a net increase in the amount of care available in this country. It costs the public system nothing. It costs taxpayers nothing. Jagmeet Singh last week was saying we need to prohibit it. We need to close what he's calling the maple loophole. Yeah, so I've I've uh, I've been on a number of interviews actually <laughs> debating what what he's been saying. He's been saying things like in BC they're buying up all the private clinics, and so I don't know. Are we going to have another you know Air Canada or whatever? But to your point about increasing access, that's a key point that I think the public really needs to know about. And I'll use a concrete example. So um, in Ontario, we have a certain number of IVF cycles. So people who can't get pregnant, they want to get pregnant, they go to fertility service and they can get something called IVF, in vitro fertilization. Ontario funds 5,500 of those a year. That number of procedures could support, you know, five clinics. A large clinic will do around a thousand procedures a year. Because Ontario allows private billing for IVF services, infertility services, we actually currently have 13 clinics in Ontario. That's is 2020 data. So in other words, people who want their publicly funded IVF services now have clinics much closer to home. We have them far up in the north, all across southern Ontario. So 13 instead of five or six, because we've allowed a greater number of, or, or a blend of public and private billing for IVF. And you have to realize that each one of those clinics hires staff and they have rent space and they have equipment. And so not only is it better for patients, it's better for the economy, it's better for the healthcare workforce. So it's better overall. So this book, this, uh, fear-mongering about um, any any blending at all is just not borne out by the data. Dr. Sean Watley, author of the book, When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing. But he doesn't just come with doom. He comes with a bit of hope and with suggestions. And I think uh, leaders in government should very much heed those. Uh, Sean, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Sean Watley. We have to end things there. My thanks to all of you for tuning in to this edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. Back on Friday with Fake News Friday and then next week with more of this program. Thank you, God bless, and have a great day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.